Okay, grab your Bible and great questions once again tonight. <clears throat> and uh, we'll begin in the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and in verse 19, Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the question is, explain this verse. What does it mean by least and great in heaven? Well, first let's just sort of establish the context here. Uh, beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. And he has to say that because his teaching of the law is so radically different than what the people had heard that people might think he's just coming and changing everything. He's destroying the law and the prophets. No, uh, Jesus lived out what the law mandated, and he taught what God meant by the law, but it was so obscured by his day that it sounded like he was almost running contrary. Even some people take the Sermon on the Mount that way, where Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, some people wrongly assume that Jesus was saying, well, you heard that here's what God's Word says, but I'm changing that. Listen, God was not changing the, the law. I mean, Jesus was not changing the law of God. He was rightly interpreting the law of God. It's just that the, the rabbis had so twisted it, uh, twisted the law of God that people didn't even really know what it meant. And so Jesus was reiterating what it meant. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. He did that in three ways. One, as I was just mentioning, he fulfilled the law in his teaching because he taught what the law of God really meant. Secondly, he fulfilled the law in his life because he perfectly obeyed it. No one did that. And thirdly, he fulfilled the law in the sense that he fulfilled the requirement of the law for breaking the law because he became a lawbreaker positionally when he died on the cross. God made him who knew no sin. So he fulfilled the law in his teaching, in his life, and in his death. So he says that, and then he says in verse 18, For assuredly I say to you, until <clears throat> heaven and earth pass away, uh, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now some people wrestle with this and say, okay, then how can we say that, you know, that we're not under the law anymore? Well, simply because of what Jesus says here. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it in his life. He fulfilled it in his teaching. He fulfilled it in his death. And once he had fulfilled it, according to numerous passages in the New Testament, he established the new covenant. So therefore, when you ask someone, the, the question is asked today, what are we under today or what are we obligated to obey? It's not the old covenant. It's been fulfilled. It served its purpose. He established the new covenant. The night before his death, he held up the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. I'm inaugurating the new covenant tomorrow when I die. So we're not under the old. We're under the new. Not that we throw out the old. The old has been fulfilled. So all that is the context leading up to verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. Now again, in the context, not only literary context, but historical context, you need to remember that when Jesus was speaking these words, the law was still in force. He had not fulfilled it. So all the Old Testament law was in force. So he is saying, listen, this is, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. It's the word of God. Uh, heaven and earth, uh, I say to you that till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will be, uh, pass, by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So Jesus is saying you ought to have a high estimation of view of the Word of God. And in that case, at that time, it was only the Old Testament. Of course, the same would apply to the New. 
But therefore, verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does, does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, listen, those who break the word of God, let me just put it in contemporary language, those who break the word of God and encourage others to do so are called or seen to be least in the kingdom. They are the least. They're not the greatest. They're not great people you look up to. Let's say it that way. And sadly, there are people like that in the family of God. There were then. There are still today. There are those who don't take the word of God that seriously. They sometimes even tell others not to take it so seriously. Oh, I know the Bible says that, but you don't have to take that so seriously. You say, would a Christian say that? Well, sadly, yes. Some Christians say that. And some people said it back then. So Jesus was not discussing uh, an issue that was just merely hypothetical. There were those who would break the law of God, break the word of God, and teach others. No big deal that you do this. And Jesus said they should be seen as least. They're not the great people. Now, again, when we talk about great people and least, it, it can almost sound prideful. But the fact is that the scripture talks about there are certain people you look up to and there are people you don't look up to. And Jesus was saying that's not the kind of people who are great in the sense it's not the kind of people you want to look up to. People who disobey and disregard the word of God and tell others to do it. Instead, on the other hand, what kind of people should be esteemed? Maybe that's a, a better term. Who should be esteemed in the family of God? Those who keep the word of God, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So for whom should we have high esteem in the family of God? Well, those who obey the word of God and tell others to obey the word of God, not those who disobey it and say, it's no big deal if you disobey it. So that's what Jesus is referring to. And again, in context, he's specifically referring to the Old Testament. The principle would still apply today. Uh, but in the context, he's talking about the Old Testament law, etc., and a person's esteem of that law and living out of that law and teaching that law, which was in force at the time. Okay, next question says this. Please give uh, a historical description of Hanukkah and explain why Jews celebrate it. Did Jesus celebrate it? How should we as believers react to or understand it? Well, the, the, the celebration of Hanukkah was not one of the, like the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, you know, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Passover, that, one of the holidays, Jewish holidays, that God instituted in the Old Testament. But it, it was a very, and still is a very meaningful holiday in the Jewish community. Uh, basically, just to summarize, this happened in the intertestamental period in about 167 B.C. Uh, when the Greeks sort of took control of the land of Israel, defiled the temple, and eventually the Maccabees, and you maybe have heard of the Maccabean Revolt, so this stems back to the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So the Maccabees finally regained control of Jerusalem, in 167, and then they returned to the temple in Jerusalem. By this time, it had been completely defiled by using, uh, uh, by being used for the worship of foreign gods and practices such as sacrificing pigs on the altar, etc. Uh, so Jew Jewish troops were determined that they were going to purify the temple uh, by burning ritual oil in the temple's menorah for eight days. But to their dismay, they discovered that there was only one day's worth of oil left in the temple. So they lit the menorah anyway, and to their surprise, as the story goes, and we don't really have anything that counters this, uh, but the small amount of oil lasted the full eight days. And so the Jews consider that the miracle of Hanukkah. 
the miracle of the Hanukkah oil, and that is celebrated every year when Jews light a special menorah known as the, uh, th this special menorah for eight days. And one candle is lit on the first night of Hanukkah, two on the second, and so on until eight candles are lit. And this always falls. Now, it's in the Jewish calendar, so it doesn't match our calendar. It's usually in December, which is why I think someone's probably asking about it now, because here we are in December, and they're probably seeing Hanukkah on the calendar. Sometimes it can actually fall as early as late November, just depending on the Jewish calendar. But usually it's in December of our calendar. It's a very special Jewish holiday. Did Jesus celebrate it? Uh, we don't have any indication that he did, but we have no reason to believe that he didn't. There was nothing wrong with it. It was a great time in Israel's history in the intertestamental period. Um, and it was uh, a, a group of Jews who wanted to be faithful to God, wanted the temple, which was still the house of God. My father's house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. Uh, so it was a very great event in, in Jewish history. Uh, no reason to doubt that Jesus celebrated it. And uh, it's something that you, the question, how should we as believers react to it or understand it? Well, I think it is especially important to understand if you have any Jewish friends or any Jewish contacts. Because, again, it's just building a bridge of friendship evangelism that their holiday would mean something to you. That you would care enough to find out what is this holiday you celebrate? Why is it so meaningful to you? And you never know how the Lord can use that. So it's a... It's not, you know, something that the Jews added, like some of their ridiculous traditions that they added that ended up actually breaking the law of God. It's a good thing. It's a good, good holiday, very meaningful holiday, one that Jews still celebrate to this day uh, and celebrated clearly in the time of Jesus and in all likelihood he would have celebrated. All right, next question says this. In the Psalms, there is often the command to shout for joy to the Lord. Is this hyperbole, or should we take this literally? Well, I think it's both. In other words, uh, yes, there are times of literal shouting in our worship, shouting in our singing, and also hyperbole just saying that our, our worship to the Lord should be, uh, should be full of emotion and not sort of this, you know, down in the doldrums where you just sort of go through the motions. And then this question, if so, how should we implement this in our corporate gatherings? Can you please demonstrate this for us? No. Well, <clears throat> I practiced this this afternoon, and after practicing, decided I'm not going to do it because I sing so poorly. But there are some songs that we sing, especially, interestingly, songs that say holy, 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 that when sung properly are, are actually more than just singing, but you are shouting the words. I think of two songs that have that in it. And if I could sing for you, I would sing a little line of both of those and sing it with, with a shout like it's often sung. So uh, you're right. That, that's it's totally appropriate that sometimes in our singing, we don't just sing with sort of monotone, uh, but we sing with exclamation or with shout, with higher volume, which is an interesting thing because uh, some saints are really bothered by high volume in singing. Isn't that interesting? They think that high volume is a bad thing, and yet it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, so, uh, yes, and I appreciate your question. It is uh, something we're exhorted to do. We take literally, but also it's also a rec uh, sort of an indication that not only are there times when it's appropriate to sing loudly or shout in our songs, but also uh, an indication that God wants our worship to be spirited and joyful and not just uh, sort of, as I said, uh, just going through the motions in some kind of liturgy. All right, next question says this. Uh, why do we pray in Jesus' name? And I think the person is asking the question not 
in the sense of who others, who's, who else's name will we pray in, you know, like Buddha or Muhammad, not that kind of thing. But why do we say, probably asking the question, why do we always say at the end, in Jesus' name? Well, it's a valid question you ask. I mean, the, the reason we pray in Jesus' name is because Jesus said, statements like in John 14, if you ask anything in my name, so that phrase occurs a lot of times. But what you probably are asking and are correct is, the, is the prayer not valid if you don't put that at the end? And it's not necessarily invalid if you don't put that at the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. But it has become a common practice or habit for Christians to say at the end, and I do almost always, we pray this in Jesus' name. But not to use that phrase does not invalidate the prayer. And it doesn't mean you're not praying in Jesus' name. It's sort of like uh, I know a lot of people use this phrase. I do a lot as uh, myself. Uh, you know, I'll say something, okay, see you next weekend, Lord willing. Well, that comes out of James, you remember? James says, you know, you, you think you can plan as if you are in control, but you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. Well, James doesn't mean you have to use that every time you make a future statement. But there's nothing wrong with saying it because it's a reminder to you, you know, Lord willing, I'll see you next week because it does depend on him. You have no control over tomorrow or next week. And I have no control over tomorrow or next week. So is it bad to use the phrase? No, unless it just becomes meaningless to you. Can it be a helpful reminder? Yes. In the same way, to say in Jesus' name, you don't have to say that at the end of your prayers. If you are a Christian, you're coming in his name when you come to the Father. But it's not bad to say it either as, lo as long as it doesn't become a meaningless repetition. All right, next question. This is a really good one. It says, since translations of the Bible... Now, please understand what he's saying. This is, this is correct. Since translations of the Bible are not technically inspired. Now, you remember that the word inspired, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspired, that is the term that we use for the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. That is, the Holy Spirit of God guided the human authors to select the exact word the Holy Spirit wanted used in every single passage of Scripture which is why Jesus could say every jot and tittle, every stroke, every detail. But what this person is saying is correct. Translations are not technically inspired. In other words, if you use an ESV or King James or New King James or NASB or whatever, you know, and you come to a verse, uh, and in one of the English translations it says something like, uh, um, we praise you, O God, and the other translation says, we bless you, O God, which is the Holy Spirit-inspired word? Well, neither. It's the Greek or Hebrew word behind that. So our translations aren't inspired, though many Christians around the world don't understand this. I remember years ago teaching in Russia when I was talking through this, and man, I had no idea I was opening up a hornet's nest by my comment. But I mean, the, the Russian believers just came up to me. You're telling me that this, my Russian Bible is not inspired? And how this came up is that there's a verse in Ephesians 4 in the Russian Bible where, for whatever reason, they left an entire phrase completely out of it. I mean, just, it's, it's just not there. It's in the Greek, and it's in our English translations, but I don't know why. The, and I was just saying, well, your Russian translation left that phrase out. I don't know why. I don't know enough, know enough about the Russian translation. But they panicked. They felt like I was attacking their Bible. And I just said, listen, what do you want me to do about it? It's in the Greek. It's in there, and it's not in your Russian Bible. I can't tell you why it's not there, uh, and I'm not attacking your Russian Bible, but your Russian Bible isn't inspired any more than the German translation or Swedish or English. So it's not technically inspired. When we use the term inspired, 
uh, in a technical sense, we're talking about original, the autographs, okay? So here's the question. Since translations of the Bible are not technically inspired, can we rightly call them the Word of God? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And let me tell you why we can. Because you might find it interesting to note that Jesus, the Bible that Jesus used, the, the, the Bible that the apostles used, the, the Bible of the first century, now we're talking about Hebrew because the New Testament wasn't written yet. When, the, when Jesus used the Bible or quoted from the Bible, he did not quote from any original manuscripts. There was not in existence an original manuscript from the Hebrew Old Testament when Jesus was here. What I'm saying is there was not the original Genesis that Moses wrote or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers. There wasn't the original Isaiah or Jeremiah or Lamentations. All that was in existence when Jesus was here by that time was copies. Not only was it copies, it was also sometimes, if they were quoting the Septuagint, a translation. Now catch this. So Jesus did not have any original manuscripts, yet he quoted Hebrew Scripture, a copy, or if it was the Septuagint, a translation, and said, thus says the Lord. So what I'm saying is Jesus attributed full authority to copies and translations, assuming again that the translation is accurate, and had no hesitation calling it the Word of God and attributing authority to it, though Jesus did not have any originals in his existence. We don't have any original. We have English translations. Can I say to you this is the Word of God? Absolutely. Can I say to you this is the authoritative Word of God? Absolutely. Can I say this is the inspired Word of God? Yes, if you understand that technicality that in the strictest sense of the term, inspired only refers to the original documents, but you can use the term as it's commonly used to refer to uh, the fact that this is from God and not from man. So inspired in the sense that this is God's word, God's revelation, not man's opinions. So yes, uh, you, you don't want to go around telling people that this isn't inspired, by the way. That would be a, a mistake. But understand, I understand what you're saying, and I agree that technically, theologically speaking, inspiration applies to the original manuscripts. And we have none. We have none today. Old Testament or New Testament. We do not have an original manuscript. And it's obvious why we don't. I mean, look at Satan contending for the body of Moses. Can you imagine what Satan could have done with the body of Moses? Causing people to worship it. Can you imagine what would be done in churches today if we had an original copy of Romans? I mean, if you kiss it, if you bow down to it, you get 50 years out of purgatory. You get extra indulgence. It's just God in his wisdom did not allow any original manuscripts to, to, exist, to stay in existence. We only have copies, and then translations. But this is the Word of God, and this is the authoritative Word of God. All right, next question says this. <clears throat> On the topic of having or wanting children, when talking to people, believers recently about this, the argument or question has come up of why would you want to bring children into this world with everything that has been going on? Wars, acts of terror, uh, acceptance of sinful lifestyle. What are your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts are on this are this is exactly the same type of thinking that people have had for decades. 
I mean, you go back to, you know, World War, War, World War I generation. Why would you bring kids into this world? Because World War I, World War II, why would you bring kids into this world? Gulf War, why would you bring, listen, if all your parents believed in that, you wouldn't be here today, right? Because it's never a good time to bring kids into the world uh, because it's always a sinful place. And so I'm not saying that there's never any situation where you apply wisdom. You know, if some foreign country took over our country and we had to flee and we were on the run and, you know, et cetera, you might say, it's not a great time to bring kids in the world. We might be running for the next two years, running into Canada or Mexico. Or, well, okay, there's wisdom with that. But if you're just saying, well, look at what's going on in the world today. It's a terrible time to bring kids in the world. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. So you could always use that line of reasoning. So I would just say that, um, again, not throwing out wisdom, but, but what's going on today is, is really it's no more worse than what happened in World War I or just go down through the you know, Revolutionary War. Should they not have had kids when the British and the Americans were fighting? It's just, it's, it's just always been that way. So it's, it's uh, maybe a little short-sighted or limited in sighting because if you get a bigger picture, you realize that you can always use that line of reasoning. All right, next question says this. Um, will the Antichrist know he is going to be evil before it happens? We, we, we have no clue. We, we don't, we're not told, you know, at what point does he recognize he is the man of sin? Uh, at what point is he satanically inspired? and contr- we, we just don't know. Just, the, the scripture is silent on that. The follow-up question is, and when will the believers know he is the Antichrist? Um, believers or unbelievers can know when or who the Antichrist is by one event. The event that Scripture says very clearly that will identify the man as the man of sin, man of lawlessness, whatever term you want to use, the event is, according to Daniel 9.27, is when he signs a seven-year treaty, covenant, whatever term you want to use, a seven-year covenant treaty with the people of Israel. That, according to the angel Gabriel, when he gave Daniel that prophecy, is the kicker. It's the starting point of the final seven years of that prophecy. We call those seven years the seven-year tribulation period. So anyone who knows Daniel 9, believer or unbeliever, anyone who knows Daniel 9, when that happens, that will be the clue. That will be the key. So believer or unbeliever, either one, uh, that is the... Now, his true character doesn't come out until the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the tribulation. But his identity, for anyone who knows Daniel 9, is, is, um, can be seen when that covenant or treaty is signed. All right, next question says this. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33 says, God will write his law on our hearts. Ezekiel also, speaking of the new covenant, in Ezekiel 36, 26 says... He will give us a new heart. This is really a great question. How do both of these passages tie to Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked? All right? Well, let me just say by, as a preface, not all Christians, Bible teachers, scholars, agree on how it relates. So let me just give you some of the, the data, the, the information. First of all, one thing I think there is general agreement on is that Jeremiah 17.9 is a key verse to show why we need new hearts, right? Because the heart is 
deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So that's why we need the promise of the new covenant, to have new hearts. Uh, here's where there's a sort of a, a you know, a, a division within, a division of thought is, but okay, what about after we have been given new hearts, i.e., we've been born again, born from above, uh, does Jeremiah 17, 9 still apply? And that's where there is a div- divided opinion. Some would say, no, it's not right to use Jeremiah 17, 9 in reference to a believer, because it's talking about in our old state, not not taking into account the the new covenant where we get a new heart. Others say, and I lean toward this, listen, I understand the new birth and the new heart and I'm a new man, but it's hard for me to say that my heart isn't still deceitful. I know my heart is still deceitful. Uh, And so there's still some application, at least, from Jeremiah 17.9 because Paul talks about, he usually uses the term the flesh, which is really hard to define because it's not the body per se. Because you don't want to say your body is, you know, it's a wicked thing because God created your body. And 1 Corinthians 6 says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Paul does indicate that our sinful nature is somehow tied to our flesh, our literal flesh, because he talks about the fact when we get new bodies, we won't sin anymore. Now, again, we don't want to take the Gnostic view that anything material is inherently evil, so our bodies are evil because they're made of flesh and bone. That's not the case. And when Paul uses the term the flesh, he doesn't usually refer, he's not usually referring specifically to the body. He's referring to the sin nature. But there is some connection or relationship between the sin nature and the unredeemed body, which is why Paul says he longs for the day that the redemption is complete and we get new bodies, Romans 8. So all that to say this, I think any honest Christian has to admit, even if you, if you say, well, I don't think Jeremiah 17, 9 should be used to refer to believers, that the heart is deceived. Okay, I can understand that. I'm not necessarily sure I agree, but I understand that if you want to protect the truth of the new birth and the new heart and all of that. But again, that being the case, you still can't deny that there's something in you that propels you to sin. And call it what you want. If you don't want to call it a deceitful heart, call it the flesh, call it the sin nature, whatever, there's still something there that compels us to sin, which is what Paul describes in Romans 7, where he says, what I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, I don't do. Always, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me, remember, from this body of death. So, you know, take your pick. And I, I've read both sides of this. I understand the arguments on both sides uh, where some say, hey, Jeremiah 17.9 is just describing unregenerate man without a new heart. Uh, okay, but still you've got the flesh to contend with. Others say it's just a statement about our hearts. It doesn't deny that we're, re- you know, that we're born again, we're regenerated, but still the, there's something within that, that there's a compulsion to sin. So you have to wrestle through that on where you land. It's a great question that you're, you're wrestling through, and I appreciate you putting it out there because it is a it is one that is debated in a friendly way among Christians and scholars, etc. All right, the next uh, question is not on Romans 13, but let's turn to Romans 13. <clears throat> Romans chapter 13. This is a passage that tells God's design for government. And the question is this. 
uh, is it appropriate to pray for the destruction of groups like ISIS, or should we only pray for the changing of their hearts and minds? And I think the answer to this is that it is not an either-or. Certainly, we should pray for the changing of their hearts and minds, and it is very easy for us to assume, well, that's silly because no one in that group is going to come to Christ. Well, that's, I'm sure, what people said about Saul of Tarsus. Why pray for Saul of Tarsus? There's no way that man will ever come to faith in Jesus, and he did. So don't assume. So in your prayers, and I understand the, the, just with all the atrocities there, how easy it is to emotionally react and just say, I'm not going to pray for God to do anything in their hearts. Just kill them, stop them, destroy them, etc. But we should pray for changing of their hearts and minds. The fact is, beloved, um, if you look back in history at, at uh, horrendous events, the Holocaust, for example, and if you take the time to research, you will find some of the most amazing stories of conversion in the midst of those types of tragedies. Now, I'm not in any way, shape, or form uh, minimizing the Holocaust, but the fact is that there are people who came to faith in Christ through the horrors of the Holocaust that probably from a human example would not have otherwise come to faith in Christ. So God uses the wrath of man to praise him, Scripture says. And so uh, don't, don't limit God to think, well, I can't pray for ISIS for their hearts and minds to be changed. So you can, and we should. But it's also not inappropriate to pray for their destruction or their, um, the, the, the stopping of them, etc. Because Romans 13 says this, when talking about government, it says, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So what Paul is saying here is that the role of government, or one of the primary roles of government, is to, let me just use his words, is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So government's role, now government never does this perfectly or right, but government's role is to execute wrath on those who practice evil. And ISIS is practicing evil. So it is appropriate to pray that God would use governments, armies, whatever, to, let's use his words, execute wrath on him who practices evil. So yes, it is appropriate to pray that, because that is one of the purposes of government. God has put government in this world to try to keep somewhat of a check on evil, which is utterly impossible with the evil of all of our hearts. But that is the role of government, to sort of keep things in line, if you will. And certainly what ISIS is doing is evil, and it is not inappropriate to pray that, that God would use governments to execute, or to, again, I'll just quote it, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. All right, next question. Let's turn to Ephesians 5. It's not specifically on this, but this will answer. Ephesians 5. Uh, And the question is this. Is there a healthy kind of self-love? Should we love ourselves? And the answer to that question, I think, actually, is that we do love ourselves. Rather than should we, it's just a given that we do. 
because we have this statement, very definitive statement, in Ephesians 5.29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. No one really hates himself. Now, I understand this runs cross-grained to many counselors today who say some people's problem is they hate themselves. That's, I don't believe that's accurate, and it's more complicated than can be explained in a short time. But people say, well, what about even those who, you know, take their own lives? Isn't that because they hate themselves? Not really. Uh, many times, and I, I don't want to be overly simplistic, many times a person takes his or her own life because it's the epitome of self-love. Because it's the attitude that says, I don't care how this hurts my parents, my brothers, my sisters, my friends. I don't care. I am miserable, and I want out of my misery, so I will take my life. And I don't really care who I devastate. Now, that is not a love for others. It isn't. It's a love for self. So even the examples we tend to think prove that there are people who hate themselves. Scripture says no one ever hated his own flesh. Even as contorted and twisted as it can be, and like I said, this is an oversimplification, so don't go out of here just quoting part of something because there, there are a lot of factors, and e each situation is unique. But So in answer to your question, is there a healthy kind of self-love? Well, no, it's already our problem. If you look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at this. 2 Timothy 3, <clears throat> verse 1. Paul says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. And that sort of is the, pardon the analogy, the huge sewer pipe from which everything else in this text flows. So men love themselves, so as a result... They're lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And even Jesus did not say, please don't misquote Jesus. I've heard it so many times. I've heard it in sermons. I've read it in books. Jesus did not say, learn to love yourself and then you can love others. That's twisting his words. He said in the second commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the assumption in that statement is you do love yourself. So love your neighbor as you love yourself. So again, in answer to your question, we do love ourselves. And it may come out in a lot of not obvious ways, but we do love ourselves. So it's really not healthy to try to Figure out how you can promote more self-love. That's, that's, that's sort of like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. Instead of thinking about how you can love yourself more or how you can love yourself in a healthy way, there is wisdom in, in a sense, losing yourself. You remember what Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, then lose yourself in love for God, in love for others. That's the appropriate kind of love, to love God, to love others. And by the way, if you love God and you love others, then some of these unusual manifestations of self-love that are sometimes called hate probably won't be as prominent because you're lost in love for God and for others. Uh, so that's I, I, the way I would answer it in, a, in an unfortunately far too simplistic way just because of limited time. All right, next question says this. <clears throat> How is what ISIS is doing different from what the children of Israel did when they conquered the promised land? Good question. Uh, of course, the default answer, and I don't mean to minimize this, but the, the default answer is that the true God of heaven and earth told Israel what they were supposed to do. 
I mean, that changes everything because whether we understand it or not, if God says to do something, like when God says to Abraham, offer your son, the right response is, I'm going to Mount Moriah to offer my son because God said to do it. I may not understand it. It may seem bizarre. It may even seem wrong, but God knows what he's doing. So that's sort of a default answer. God, the true God of heaven and earth, the creator, the God of Israel, told them to go into the land. Now, fortunately, we have some insight into why maybe God told them to do what they did. Because what we do know now from both archaeology and history, is, and it makes sense as to why God said don't leave them in the land, is because the people in the land were maybe as vile as any people in all of human history. The practices of the Canaanites, uh, you know, infant sacrifice, which God was so abhorred by, he says through the prophets, that would never enter my mind. That's God's wording. That would never enter my mind for you to take your little babies and offer them in the fire. But that's what the Canaanites were doing. That's just one of the many horrific things they were doing. So they were, they were past the point of no return. And God said, by the way, that land was not their land. God makes it clear. He calls that land throughout Scripture, my land. It's his land. It's not even really the Jews' land. Some, the big argument today, whose is the land? Is it the Palestinians or is it the Jewish people? It's neither. It's God's. It's God's land. He has the sovereign right to give it to whomever he chooses. And he told the, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, go into the land and don't leave any of the people there. Why? Because they will corrupt you. And it's exactly what they did. And look at what the Jews did. They ended up practicing infant sacrifice. Not to mention all the other things they did. So that's a far cry from ISIS, which basically does that. They go in and rape little girls. They, they go in and rape women. They take women as their wives, supposedly. That's what they call it to justify uh, their, their abuse of women. It's a far cry. And they go into, not to, to people, they go into you know, law-abiding people, not people who are offering their infants as sacrifices, and they do heinous things to them. So uh, to try to compare what ISIS is doing to what the children of Israel is doing, actually the, the closer comparison is what the Canaanites were doing and what ISIS is doing. It's a far more accurate comparison. So again, we know that from history, from from archaeology, etc., which gives us now a little more reason. But listen, gang, even if we didn't know that, and God says this is what you do, that's what you do, and it's right. But thankfully, we do have some information that helps in response to people who wonder, well, what is the difference? How do you justify it? Well, God knew what he was talking about, and there were many reasons, and maybe only eternity will show more of them, but many reasons why what God was doing was actually gracious and merciful to people who were doing the things they were doing among the Canaanite civilizations. All right, last question is sort of multifaceted. Uh, it says this, uh, <clears throat> in visiting other churches and then being here at Grace for quite some time, I've learned, that much, I've learned much about different approaches to or philosophies of ministry. I was wondering if you could explain how you and other pastors who speak and Pastor Jeremy view Sunday morning worship services how you prepare for services, that is, how do you decide on music that we sing, what sermons to preach, book series versus topical, etc. Well, let me pause and address that. Uh, the simpler of that, uh, the simplest way to answer that question, the one part of it, is that Pastor Jeremy tries to the best of his ability to match topic or theme of what we're going to be covering. Now, obviously, that's tough. 
I mean, how do you find six weeks of music on the abomination of desolation, right? <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, you know, what is he going to do with that? But he tries to at least match some theme, and I think he does a, a great job with that. But, so that's an answer to that. How do I decide it's not an exact science? Uh, I'm getting near the end of Mark. You say it doesn't seem like that. Well, that's only because we're in 13, but I'm actually studying chapter 16 because I'm always studying ahead of what I'm preaching so I don't box myself in. So I'm, at the, I'm in chapter 16 studying, and so I know I'm getting to the end of Mark, and so I'm beginning to pray about, Lord, what is the next book? And it's not an exact science how I decide that. I decide it by talking to other leaders in the church. What are you men dealing with? What are you seeing in the classes, the people you're working with? So a combination of praying about it, getting input from the body, and then, uh, Lord, guide my thoughts, and then I land somewhere, and then I preach it. Um, and you're right, I almost always preach book series versus topical. Uh, I do, well, the last two weeks I sort of did topical because I did Thanksgiving messages, but I do books because I believe expository preaching is both a protection for you and for me. And what I mean by that is expository preaching is a protection for me because I just preach what's there. I just preach through the book and no one can say, well, Brian's aiming at me, he's mad at me, he's going after me, he's calling me out. No, it's the text. And if that's the way you feel, you need to do some work with the Holy Spirit because I'm not deciding the text. The text is deciding the text. So that's a protection for me that no one can say, you're just picking your pet peeves and you're grinding an ax, etc. But it's a protection for you because I don't just preach my topics. I just preach whatever's there. Sort of like, again, going back to an illustration, talking to some of the believers in Russia on the side, they just say, ah, you know, Pastor Brian, we don't know what to do with this. Our leaders every six weeks preach on head coverings. That's a big deal in Russia, by the way. Ladies wearing a head covering. It's like once a month they preach on head coverings. Well, that's the ax they grind. And if they would preach through books of the Bible, that would not happen. But that's, the people have no protection because the pastor can just decide whatever he wants to preach on. And if he wants to preach on head coverings once a month, he preaches on head coverings once a month. So I think expository preaching is a protection for me, and I think it's a protection for you. There is a place for topical messages to address subjects, but I think for overall health to just, just I want to be able to say what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, Acts 20, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Just preach through all of it. Uh, the question goes on, some churches I have noticed do topical sermons each week, which isn't bad, all, all bad, but sometimes scripture is used out of context to make a point. Do you ever do topical sermons? Yes, occasionally, the last two weeks, for example. If not, is there a reason? I just explained. Some pastors in these other churches say they do topical sermons because it allows them to hit people where they live, and there's a place for that to address issues. A friend of mine who was recently visiting here said the sermon was good, but knowing about the abomination of desolation doesn't help me know how to deal with my teenage son who is having problems or my coworker whose wife just left him. How can we respond? Well, this is my response. I would just say to your friend, uh, maybe he ought to tell Jesus, Jesus, I think you missed the boat by addressing the abomination of desolation in the Olivet Discourse, and you should have instead preached on the co-worker's wife who left him. Right? Or maybe tell the Holy Spirit, you really missed the boat by inspiring Matthew and Mark to record the Olivet Discourse, which has as a major focus the, the abomination of desolation. Or maybe you should take issue with Matthew and Mark, both of whom who chose to record the Olivet Discourse and major on the, uh, the, the uh, abomination of desolation. You get the point. If I announce next week I'm going to preach on the co-worker whose wife left him, how many people will that apply to? Maybe there's two of you here that have a co-worker whose wife left him. 
You see, that, that people don't think through the dead end of that type of approach. Uh, if you just preach the Word of God, the Word of God has the ability to address whatever issues that we have to address. But, um, you know, I didn't pick to, I mean, I picked to preach through Mark, but I didn't, I didn't choose to talk about the abomination of desolation in a vacuum. That's just what was there. So if the person has a problem with it, talk to Jesus about it. He's the one who introduced it. I just preached what Jesus said. So um, people don't always think through the implications of what they're saying. So how do we respond to people who want topical sermons each week that will help people in practical ways? Well, the assumption of that statement is preaching through the Word of God is not practical, which I would completely disagree with. In fact, I'll tell you, I have the, I have the vantage point and an advantage that obviously you don't have of knowing as I'm preaching each Sunday, sometimes it is way more often that could ever be coincidence that the timing of God, I remember a few years ago when I had planned weeks in advance to preach on God's assessment of homosexuality, not having any idea as I was preaching through this, that it fell on the exact weekend when Bozeman had a pride parade. Now I wish I could say I was smart enough to orchestrate that. I'm not, but God did. And there are times when I preach on things, and I'm just, it's just whatever's next, and I think, God's timing is amazing. I just don't think I'm smarter than God. I know he's smarter. Jesus is the head of the church. I just will preach what's there and let him orchestrate timing. Now, again, I'm not saying there's no place to pause a series, to address a topic, etc. But the assumption of this statement is, well, topical sermons are practical. Expository sermons are not practical, which I would completely disagree with. So is there a place for topical preaching? Absolutely. But I think the overall health of the church as a protection for you and a protection for me is just to take Scripture and preach through it and then let God be our teacher. So that's why I take the approach I take. All right, let's stand as we close with prayer. Father, thanks for a wonderful Lord's Day and thank you for our time together this morning and this evening. Thank you for this time of the year that we uh, can look forward with joyous anticipation to celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, what a gift. No wonder Paul said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable, indescribable gift. And that is truly what the Lord Jesus is. May our hearts be enthralled by him and with him this Christmas season as we pray in his blessed name. Amen.